In 2017, it hasn't been that long, uh, Berta and I were married, and uh, when, we, when we finished our wedding, we did what uh, every couple does after they plan a, an elaborate year-long wedding extravaganza and spend all that money. Uh, we go on a completely unjustified vacation. Uh, <laughs> you ever wonder, like, it's just like a weird thing, right? Like, let's celebrate all this stuff by vacation. But we, we decided of all the places that we would go, uh, we spent some time in California in the Napa, San Francisco area um, because number one, we kind of like wine and wanted to little, learn a little more about that. And number two, um, I'd grown up in Germany and France and, and, and Europe and she had traveled and lived there for some time extensively. We'd both been to all kinds of countries and we both realized we'd probably been to more countries than states in the United States. And so while people might want to go to some beach in another nation, we, we wanted to see the country. I'd never been to the West Coast. Uh, she, I think, had landed there once on the way to somewhere else. And so we spent time there and we went through all kinds of places. We were in Napa for a while. We went to Lake Tahoe and checked that out, uh, which by the way, Lake Tahoe in July, eh, uh, definitely a winter place. Uh, we wondered, the hotel was so cheap. We wondered why it was so cheap. Um, but the favorite place that we went of all of them was we spent uh, three days, two and a half, three days, uh, hiking through Yosemite. Uh, and because we went there after Tahoe, we actually got to drive into Yosemite from the eastern side, which most people don't do. And so we went through the, the crazy Tioga Pass is what they call it. Uh, and I had a little BMW convertible that they had upgraded us to for free that we were rolling around with. And uh, the cliff was like here like right outside the door. And so I enjoyed the beauty of the creation of God for about two to three hours driving through, and Britta was like this in her phone the entire time driving through. But uh, one, of the, one of the coolest things that, that, that we see when we go to places like Yosemite is this. Listen, I, I had seen pictures of the place. I'd looked at photos of El Capitan. I watched a documentary of someone climbing it. I'd seen people, you know, in, in footage hiking Half Dome and all these places, but there's no level of description of someone who had been there or photos of, that people had taken or videos that they or drones or whatever they use nowadays had shot. None of that could in any way compare or come close to the experience of actually having gone and been there and stood among the grandeur of those mountains. Right? There's, there's nothing that you could have said or shown me that would cause me to know what it was like to be in that place. And here's just here's a couple little, you know, beautiful photos. Yeah, it makes you hate where you live right now, doesn't it? Yeah. Um, just the, the majesty of, of the Lord at work. There's, there's something about it. There are things in life that we can't know or understand what they are or, you know, or, or, or fathom or experience until we're actually in the midst of it. You can't describe certain things to people. You can't describe the moment you say, I do, to somebody, right? And, and God takes this two and makes one in some way that none of us have yet to figure out how it works. You can't describe what it feels like to be there for the birth of your child, 
Right? That, that does, that's not a feeling of, well, yeah, I know exactly, I knew what to expect because 40 people had told me their kid's birth story and so it was just like any other day. No, like there's, until you're in it, there are just certain things that we cannot grasp or fathom or know, no matter how well they're described, no matter how vividly they're painted for us by other people. Right? One of those things, the most significant of those things, is God himself. We, we can't fathom, there's no amount of description or, or picture painting or, you know, we can look at the stained glass or icons. There's no amount of beauty on earth. There's no amount of words spoken that can somehow help you to truly know God. And I don't mean know about him. I don't mean know facts about him the way you would study in a book. But to know God, right? to have that, that intimate understanding of who he is, to experience God, you can't, you can't do that through the lens of other people. Right? It's just not possible. There's no amount of that. And we have plenty of description to go on when it comes to God. Right? Every week you come here and we unpack things about God. You hopefully learn something, even if it's minor, new about God each week you're here. Or at a Bible study or at a, a fellowship group that you connect with or some small group. Or whether it's at an open house hanging out with all your church folks together. Right? We learn about God. But it doesn't, it doesn't help you actually know him. It helps you know about him. Right? Even when we read the Bible, and the Bible is the powerful living word of God, even when we do that, you learn about God, but it doesn't help you know him. Right? How many people do we know who have read the Bible cover to cover multiple times that are not believers? How easy would that be? All we have to do is get someone to read the Bible and, like, magically they would just know God fully and believe. Right? It doesn't work that way. Right? It's the most powerful book ever. It's the only living, breathing word that we have. There's nothing else on the shelves of Barnes & Nobles that carries that weight and that power. But yet, in and of itself, even though these are God's words, they don't help you. They don't ultimately cause you to know him. You don't experience God through words or pictures or testimonies of other people. We know how God wants us to live. We know what God says about certain things. But to know him is not the same as to know about him. So we need more. We need something else in order to tell ourselves that we, we actually can experience the fullness and fully know God. And, and that's where Jesus comes in. See, we've been looking at this character of Jesus and the various attributes that we learn about him through our main Advent text for this year, and that's John 1, verses 1 through 18. This morning, we're going to briefly take some look and explore the majesty of God, right? We looked at the divinity of God, the love of God, the grace of God, and today we're going to close by looking at the majesty of God. And as before, we'll do this by working our way through John 1, 1 through 18. But today we're going to focus, after we finish reading through it, on just the last single verse, verse 18. So let's stand together and let's spend some time just reading through again one more time as we have that beginning opening of John's gospel. One of the most beautiful written segments of scripture. In the beginning was the word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God, and all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness hasn't overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. Far from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace, and for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And here's today. No one has ever seen God. The only God who was at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's the word of the Lord. Oh, we're getting good at that. Have a seat. For our purposes, we're just, we're just looking at that last verse, right? We're told that somehow God has, has never been seen. And wonder what, what John is saying there. He's literally telling us, listen, no, no one has ever seen God. Almost like in a questioning, is he real? Like, no one has, has ever seen Santa, Right? Although Graham got to see Santa yesterday, and that was a lot of fun. But no one has ever seen God, but, he, but, but the only God, so no one has seen him, but he himself, right, who is at the Father's side, again, who is who, is who here, right, he has made him known. So, so how is it that we come to know God? How is it that we experience him? How does Jesus factor all of them into this? Well, we have to take this little verse that's seemingly kind of the afterthought of the prologue, and put it into its four parts and kind of explore them separately because there's a lot to unpack in this short little verse. And so we have four sections, four kind of sentence pieces that fall into this. And they're, they're the, these are as follows. The first is this. No one has ever seen God. Right? And we'll look at that. The second is the only God. Yes, those three verses have a lot to say. Right? And then who is at the Father's side? And then finally, he has made him known. So let's look at those one by one and kind of dissect what we might be able to pull out. Number one, no one has ever seen God. Right? We, we alluded to this uh, a week or two ago. But in Scripture, as we read from the time that sin entered the world, right, no one comes face to face with God. Right? There's all these instances where the Lord communicates his desires or his attributes or his nature to God's people. He calls a people unto himself through Abraham, eventually all the way through, through the Exodus and Moses and the Israelites. He has his people. He gives them the law. He communicates things about him. He, he's there as a cloud and fire and all those kinds of things. But they're manifestations. They're veiled, right? Moses sees God through what? The, the burning bush. Right? There's not a, a God just there that Moses talks to the way that Adam and Eve would have talked to God. It's this veiled kind of hidden experience that he somehow has. My favorite is in the, in the book of Isaiah, uh, in Isaiah chapter 6, verses 4 through 5. This is it. Um, the, 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 the hem of the garment of God is said to have appeared in the temple. So, so Isaiah essentially lays his eyes on the hem of, like, the corner of the garment of God. 
essentially. And this is his response. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I, Isaiah, said, Woe is me, for I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. He sees this, this little tiny fraction of, of the person of God somehow, and, and he freaks out because he worries that he's going to die because he's seen God somehow, even if it's just kind of the little the flash of his robe. Right? That's, that's how much awe and reverence and fear about the actual seeing of God exists in the Old Testament. God's presence is veiled. They know about God what little he chooses to reveal. And that's why the people in the Old Testament celebrate every time God speaks or shares something with them. That's why they rejoice at the law, right? Because they, they, that's something else they knew about who God was and how he wanted them to be as his people, right? It's like they were walking around in a void with no idea, like chickens with their heads cut off, and then the God comes in and gives them the Ten Commandments, which brings order to the chaos. They said, okay, we know what to do now, at least. Right? They stunk at it, but they at least knew what they should be doing. Right? And we still stink at it today, but at least we have an understanding through that little revelation. But they don't know God fully. All of it is veiled. And so no one has seen God. No one fully can know God. What the people before Jesus knew about God was what he chose to let be known. It was a veiled, clouded, semi-experience. Right? They got a foretaste, an appetizer of what God is. They didn't get to see anything more than that. Right? So that's, John establishes that here very clearly. He said, look, no, no one, like throughout history, no one has seen God. No one, no one can just know him. No one can walk up to God and talk with God and experience him in his fullness. That's just not something that people have do. If you think that that's you, then you're crazy. No one has ever seen him. Number two, the only God. Second little phrase. And there's a, there's a mistranslation here. There's some debate about how we translate this word only. The word only is monogenesis, a fancy Greek word. And, and most translations use some kind of only or only one or only God. But if you go back to some older translations, like a King James or even a New King James, or some more staunch, like the American Standard Version, for instance, they use the phrase only begotten. God. Somewhere along the way, that was, that was missed, missed there, right? And so most translations have it that way. So a better reading would here would be the only begotten God in a good sense, if you really want to understand what does this phrase, the only God, really mean, would be this, the only unique Son of God. Right? The only unique Son of God. The point is this. Jesus is emphasized in that little set of words as being 100% divine in God, as we talked about three weeks ago, and 100% begotten and made at the same time. And so, no one has seen God, colon, however, the only begotten God, the only made God, the only 100% divine but also human one, Jesus, right? Then the next phrase, who is at the Father's side, this, this at the Father's side, we see uh, the, the phrasing that is used for that. The translation would probably best better be the, the one who is in the bosom of the Father. Right? 
And that's not in a, like a mother-father or mother-son nurturing kind of way. That's not in a romantic way. What, with the, with the, word, the whole idea of being in the bosom of someone in Scripture is, is a testament to the level of intimacy and closeness that one experiences. Not a romantic intimacy, but, but, a, but a full-blown, uh, closer than you could ever get. It's not about romance. It's about, a, it's about a different kind of love, a love that we can't really fathom or understand, but a, a closeness and an intimate understanding and knowledge. Right? John actually himself, if we go a little bit further in the gospel, in, in chapter 13, John talks about himself being in the bosom of Jesus. He's, he reclines and he's in the bosom of Jesus. He has this closeness and intimacy. That's why Jesus calls John the disciple whom I love, right? It's not that Jesus plays favorites, but if he did, it'd be John. Right? And he kind of knew it. You know? And he writes about it in a veiled way. And it's not to brag, but just to, like, he had this, 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 this relationship with John that he didn't. It's just there was something deeper to it. Man, he was in the bosom of Jesus. And so we're described here that no one has ever seen God. The only one, the 100% man and 100% God, the begotten only son, unique in every way, unlike anyone else who's ever lived or ever will ever live. The only one who is so close to the Father that we don't even really have words for it. So we say something like, in the bosom of, right? That, that one, that God. And by the way, this, this phrase, this whole only God who is at the Father's side, this simultaneously being God, but also being really separate and closely connected, right? John is kind of repeating his opening a little bit, right? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And so we kind of have to suspend our logic a little bit to, to get a hang of that phrase. But this God can't be seen, but the only fully human, fully divine God who was begotten and is closer to the Father than anything you could ever imagine or know, He has made Him known. He has made him known. The word for made known is exegesato. comes from exogenai. And, and, and if you've ever heard, raise your hand if you've ever heard the word exegesis. It's a fancy Bible word that we sometimes use. When I was in, in undergrad and in seminary, I had to write exegesis papers in, in various biblical studies classes. And what they were is, it was, it was like a massive deep dive study on a passage. I was, I'd be giving like a chapter and whatever, or like three verses, and I'd write like 30 pages on three verses. Right, of one piece of scripture. And it would be the linguistic study is like every Greek or Hebrew word torn apart for its meaning and it's, it's tense and it's the sense of the word and my own translation of it through, through deep study of those languages. And then it was cultural study and context and this idea of looking at all of the surrounding passages and how this one fits into the midst of it. So not just what it says, but what the stuff around it says that might enlighten what it says. And then you would look at the history of the time and what the people were like. Right? And so you'd look at a passage that talked about farming and you would understand it differently back then than you do today because farming was more meaningful to that community and they would have related to it in a different way. And so you study, you put yourself in the mind of a first century Jew and try to see it how they saw it. Then you do linguistic studies. Is it a narrative text or a poetic text or a, an apocalyptic text? Or, you know, all of this deep stuff that involves like 60 different open books in front of you on a massive table, that's what we would call an exegesis paper. And this word exegesis comes from the same word of exegesato, in this case, that is used when it says that he, Jesus, made the Father known. And what it tells us is that Jesus makes to us known the Father in a, in a way and in a depth that goes so far beyond anything that we 
could fathom or imagine. Jesus is the one who makes God known to us. He's saying that Jesus exegetes God the Father for us. How exactly does he do that? He does it by being fully God and being fully man. He doesn't exegete God by writing a paper for us that we get to read, right? although we do have his word. He, he does it for us by being, actually being him. That's why John calls Jesus the word. He reveals God to us by observation. When we see Jesus come to earth and the ministry that he forms while he's here and the sacrifice that he makes by dying on the cross and the way that he's raised up in, in power and ruling and reigning. And everything we see about Jesus is equal to what we see about the Father. Our Kent Hughes puts it like this. Jesus is the explanation of God the Father. The greatness of Christ explains the greatness of the Father. The greatness of Christ's love explains the greatness of the Father's love. And the greatness of Christ's grace explains the greatness of the Father's grace. So how does this matter for us? Because through Jesus, through his humanity, through divine godness coming to earth, we get to experience God. When we see him, we see the Father. We can know God because we can know Jesus. Because they are one and the same. That's how he is made known to us. He is not this veiled thing because Jesus really did come to earth and really did live divinely among the people and really did walk with them and talk with them the way that God did as the Trinity with Adam and Eve before the fall. It was finally not veiled. See, we think that, well, Jesus came and so people got a taste of what God is like. No, Jesus came and so people got God. Fully him. Everything about him. When you see how Jesus interacts with a sinner, that is God's heart and mind for sinners. When you see Jesus get righteously angry at something, that is God's righteous anger. When you see how Jesus teaches and uses miracles to, to multiply things like loaves and fishes to provide for the people out of an abundance of his grace. That's the grace of God on display. Fully. 100%. It's not like Yosemite or a picture of Yosemite. It's being there. And so because Jesus came and lived on this earth and lived the sinless life and sacrificed for us, we get to experience the fullness of God and who he is. And if you're a Christian today, it's because you read this word at some point and Jesus, through the Holy Spirit, illumined you and allowed you to see him. That's why some people read this book and it's nonsense to them, right? It's always funny to me. People get mad when, like, you know, like a Bible hits the floor or when, it, like, an old, it's old riggedy and so we throw it out. There's, like, this is, this is paper, right? Like, I could, I could light this on fire and, like, would God's word in any way be diminished? No, we have, like, 600 Bibles in this building, it's, it's a living, breathing thing. It's not about the, 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 this. It's about the Holy Spirit illuminating your heart as you read it. 
So God gives us this word, and then he gives us through him the power to grasp it, to bring it to life. That's why Jesus is called the word. Jesus is the mechanism through which this becomes alive to us. Otherwise, it's just words on a page. Because we're stained by sin. We could never comprehend this without the power of Jesus behind us. Having come to this earth and and, and allowed us to experience God fully. That's, That's how Jesus displays God to us. That is how, even though we cannot see God, the only God who is at the side of the Father, he makes him known. You can know God. You don't have to have a PhD. You don't have to clean yourself up to a certain threshold before you can come through the steps of the church and somehow experience God. There's nothing you have to do other than to ask Christ to illumine his word to you. And he will. If you can't read, get the audiobook. And he can even illumine the word to you that way. You don't need anything other than Jesus. That's it. I'm not good enough. Doesn't matter. I'm not smart enough. Doesn't matter. I don't own a Bible. We'll give you one. There's one on the thing in front of you. Take it home with you. Write your name in it. If you want a fancier one, find me after church. We've got a couple in the back. We'd be happy to just give you a fancy Bible that you can take. We have some journaling Bibles that are pretty nice. You can take one of those. Read it. Understand it. Let the Lord illumine this to you. And because Jesus is fully God... That means that Jesus currently fully reigns in majesty. A lot of times when we read the Gospels, we think of Jesus as this, like this, almost this kind of scapegoaty, sacrificial lamb. And he's called that, right? But we think that like Jesus was just kind of like hanging out next to God like an apprentice in heaven until it was his turn to go down and like die like a sacrifice. All right, Jesus, time to do your cross thing. Okay. Right? No. Jesus is 100% God, as is the Father, as is the Spirit. And so after his sacrifice on the cross, right now, as we speak, Jesus is reigning and ruling this earth and preparing to come again, this time not as a baby, but on a white horse, as a conqueror. And when that happens, man, am I glad to be on that side of things. How about you? (laughs) There's a few places in Scripture where we see this majesty thing worked out. Here's Matthew, uh, two two places that kind of relate. The first is 11.27. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. You know that part, right? My yoke is easy, my burden is light. All that good stuff. But all things have been handed over to me by my Father. When we have the the Great Commission where he tells people to go and make disciples, he starts it like this way. And Jesus came and said to them, All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Every ounce of in charge that you can be by God, I, I have all that authority. God's not over here pulling my puppet strings. I I am him, and I have all authority on heaven and on earth. So in light of that, go, make disciples, baptize them, and so forth. The authority rests on God. Here's a fun one. We have this clear picture where Peter quotes Psalm. 
Here's first Psalm 110, 1 through 4. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion, you mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be ours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Jesus has given this authority. Sit at my right hand. Right? You will rule right next to me. Father, Son, and Spirit ruling and reigning together. And Peter, in the book of Acts, quotes this psalm when he says, Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not descend into heaven, but he himself says, here's the quote, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until you make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. I like his little dig there at the end. He's talking to the Jews who crucified Jesus. And he's saying, look, make no mistake, Jesus is not just Christ, Savior, but Lord, the ruler. You know, the one that you killed on the cross? Awkward, right? Like he, just, he just digs at it, but he, he establishes once and for all, without any doubt, Jesus rules and reigns. He is not the scapegoat, the sacrificial lamb, and nothing else. He rules and he reigns. And he's going to continue to rule and reign as he continues to conquer every obstacle that stands between you and God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the last one that he'll conquer is death. And if you want to read about how that's going to play out, let's go through the book of Revelation and you'll see all, all about it. Right? It's a beautiful picture of Christ as the conquering king dealing with death in his rule and in his reign once and for all so that the new Jerusalem comes and we might again fully experience presence of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? But until that day, you don't have to wait to know what God is like. You can know through Jesus. You can know without a shadow of a doubt. Right? This Advent, we will celebrate the birth of Christ, not just as a savior, not just as a fire insurance, but as the one that makes God finally known to us. The people in the Old Testament, sometimes we think that they saw more of God than we do. Like, well, they had the cloud above them. That was pretty cool. Like, you, you don't realize you actually have a deeper understanding of the presence of who God is than they ever did because you have Jesus. You know more about God and his nature and who he is because you know everything, because you have and you know Jesus. And so this Saturday and Sunday morning when we come here and we celebrate the birth, that's what we celebrate. We celebrate that after thousands of years of veiled presence, we finally get to know God. Right? After seeing picture after picture after picture, man, we're finally there. We get to be there and actually see it clearly. Right? The question is, are you going to allow him to rule and reign? Right? Is Jesus going to be your functional crutch? Or is he going to be the king, the conquering king, that gets to actually do some ruling and reigning in your life? Right? You have to decide that for yourself as we come together this Christmas. Until then, let's pray. Lord, thank you. We praise you for the king that you are.
And Lord, we confess that we usually, in many ways in in our day, forget to exalt you as king. We love the sacrificial lamb. We love the person who provides for us, the one who multiplies loaves and fishes, the one who heals blindness and conquers disease. But Lord, when it comes time to accept your rule and your reign, a lot of times we struggle because the sin of our life just wears us down. Lord, we first ask for forgiveness when we don't allow you to be the king of our hearts. And so we ask you, we ask you to make yourself Lord of our life. We ask you to reign in us with your majesty and your power and in your glory. We ask that we might pattern ourselves after you even when it's uncomfortable because you are the king. You are the suzerain. We are the vassal. You have the power. Our job is to be obedient and to lean into what it is that you have to say. Our job is to find ourselves prayerfully trying to get closer and closer into the bosom of Jesus. Help us do that through your Holy Spirit this week. Help us prepare our hearts and minds to understand the reality of what that means so that when we gather a week from today on that Christmas Eve, that we might understand fully in our hearts what it is that we celebrate. Be with us. We love you and we praise you. Together, all as people said.